a very familiar feeling is beginning to come over me. What? I'm beginning to feel like a horse's ass. That's what. My name is Stephen King. Welcome to Filmstrip and our views of selected works of Stephen King featuring Nick. Kiss me, fat boy. And Jay. Sometimes that is better. Mr. and Mrs. Kincaid have asked, but I say a word of comfort to you if I could. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled and contain in-depth discussions of the plots, characters, and themes. There is no comfort. (laughs) There is only private justice. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. And now, here are Nick and Jay. Welcome to Continuous Play Podcast Film Strip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of Stephen King's Silver Bullet, starring Corey Haim, Gary Busey, Megan Follows, Everett McGill, and narrated by Tova... Uh, yeah, Tova Fellshoe. Directed... <laughs> Directed by Daniel Adius, released in 1985 on a budget of $7 million, grossed over $12.3 million in its theatrical run, considered to be a bit of a bomb, but has a cult status. Now, Nick, you and I talked about last time, we both had read the novella that this is based on, Cycle of the Werewolf, but you have never seen Silver Bullet before, am I correct? You are correct. I have not seen it until I watched it for the show. It is a different kind of story. You know, I mean, so far with Stephen King here, we've, we've gone with, I guess, The Haunted House, if you want to, or, you know, Telepathy, The Shining, um, you know, whatever the hell Cat's Eye was supposed to be in <laughs> its three incarnations. I guess trolls were involved in that and, you know, the animal culture. And now we're into werewolves, right? So why not? <laughs> you <know>? Why not? <laughs> Uh, I can tell you, I have seen this many, 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 many times over my life. I saw this first, uh, on one of the times in short times of my life when I was younger, when we had, it was either Showtime or HBO. I don't remember, but it came on that. And my dad caught it late one night and he just thought it was one of those things I would like. So when it came on again, he, you know, told me about it and he and I watched it and it was one of those that we rented and then I would catch it on television here and there growing up. And then when I had a chance to, I bought it on DVD and I've had it for years. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen it, but I've seen pieces of it here and there and I, and then I'll catch it, you know, catch part of it on. And I, I don't know why I come back to this movie at least once a year, there's something about it that I will watch again. And, um, I, and it's not because I'm a werewolf fan because I'm really not oddly enough, but there's just something about this one that I've seen several times. And it wasn't until I was a lot older that I realized or paid attention to the fact that it was based on, you know, a novella. And I, I, when I've talked about many times on this podcast, one of my odd jobs working in college was working the midnight shift in the library. And I had a lot of time on my hands when I was 
doing that. And so I would go grab Stephen King books off the shelf. And this was one of the ones I grabbed. It was in it and I burned through it in a night. And I remember walking away from that thinking, wow, that was a lot better than that, that cheesy movie. But I still will go back to this cheesy thing time and again. I am shocked. I'm literally shocked. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, play show my hand right away, but, uh, I'm shocked by what you're saying. Um, the novella, yeah, I read that too. I read that probably by the age of 14. I had a English class, and we had to do a semester or quarter reports on yep. a book of our choosing, and that happened to be just one of them. I saw it, and I was like, Stephen King, okay, he's an author. They're not going to know this is really like a novella. I can probably pass it off as a novel. And there's pictures in here too. So it was kind of like a, you know, it was like a hat trick for me. It's like, ah, it's got three good things about this. So I went ahead and read it and I enjoyed it. I really don't remember much of the novel. I just remember a kid in a wheelchair, some fireworks and a werewolf. And yeah, I mean, I, I've heard about this movie plenty of times. I always, you know, remember this being one of the films brought up in the Stephen King, you know, or, you know, collection of adaptations. and uh, But I just never had the desire to see it. It just seemed kind of cheesy, seemed kind of low budget. Yeah, it had Corey Haim and, you know, Gary Busey in it, who I both know those guys, and I do enjoy some of the movies they're in. But I just never got around to seeing it until uh, we did this list and you chose this one. So, Well, uh, <laughs> I put it on here for a specific reason that I will not reveal right now that I will talk about as we get closer maybe to the end of the podcast. But I did put it on here for a specific reason. But I guess before we get any further for the uninitiated, why don't you go ahead and give us a plot summary? Spoil the whole thing for us, Nick. Tell us what Silver Bullet's about. You know, this is kind of like when you go out drinking too much and you end up vomiting. This is like, you know, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the here here's what it here's what it is. <laughs> um, Jane Coslow, who narrates the film from an unknown time in the future, tells about a time when her paraplegic younger brother Marty, played by Corey Haim, and their wild and crazy uncle Red, played by Gary Busey, came face to face with a werewolf terrorizing their small town. Jane tells us how Tarker Mill, Maine, was thrust into fear as a series of grisly murders starts after school lets out for the spring. First, there's the town drunk, then an hysterical woman thwarted in a suicidal attempt, and the next night, an abusive greenhouse keeper. Then, a young boy is torn apart and the town sheriff tries to keep order while many of the remaining men form a lynch mob for private justice. However, a number of the lynch mob members are killed when they venture into the wood. Reverend Lowe is even haunted in his dreams as the entire congregation turns into werewolves during a eulogy he is delivering. At a 4th of July picnic, Uncle Red presents Marty with a supercharged motorcycle wheelchair (laughs) for him to drive to and from school in and gives him his own private stash of fireworks so the young boy can enjoy the celebration even though the town has canceled its usual event in light of the recent murders. Dun, dun, dun. Marty sneaks out late at night and is shooting off his fireworks when the werewolf comes for him. Marty hits the creature in the eye and escapes. (laughs) He confesses to Jane, and she believes him, and she even uses her bottle and cans donation drive as a way to look for someone missing an eye. Just as she thinks she's done with Marty's wild goose chase, she is startled to see that Reverend Lowell, wearing a fresh eye patch, 
Marty and Jane begin mailing Lowe anonymous suicide notes. Lowe tries to run Marty off the road with his car <laughs> in his supercharged wheelchair and even corners him before the local farmers hear Marty's cry for help. When the two tell Uncle Red about the, sus- the suspect, he dismisses it but reluctantly tells the town sheriff about it. The sheriff goes to check it out and is killed by Lowe, who transforms in front of him. The big reveal. Marty and Jane give Red silver necklaces and ask him to get them a silver bullet so they can take on the werewolf once and for all. Red does so and even arranges for a trip to get Marty and Jane's parents out of town on the weekend of the next full moon, which is Halloween. <laughs> Just after midnight, the werewolf comes and attacks. In a struggle, Red is hurt, but Marty gets the gun and shoots the werewolf in the other eye, killing it as the creature transforms back into the Reverend and dies. And Marty and Jane fall even more in love. <laughs> That's not what happens. <laughs> I think you've summed it up well there. But, uh, well, I'll just say this, okay? I, I said before all of that, and I wanted you to summarize it and kind of spoil it because there's no way for us to sort of plump point walk through this movie for to do so would be the most boring podcast I can think of. This is a really simple thing. And I, I said also I would reveal why I put this on the list. And, and there's a very good answer for this, Nick. It better be. I said in the first one of these that we did that Stephen King likes to use kids that he finds, you know, a disadvantage for and give them, I don't know, a superpower or give them like just something else that makes them special when nobody else thinks they're special. And it could be a kid that is kind of quiet and alone like Danny was in The Shining or has abusive parents, but he also has telepathy or whatever. And in this case, it's Marty who's in a wheelchair. And they make a big deal out of the fact that he's in a wheelchair. And they talk about it all the time. And they use words that we wouldn't use in the 21st century anymore. You know, they, they talk about that constantly. But <clears throat> Marty has an incredible sense of being willing to believe in things that are hard to believe in and courage to stand up to them. And this is something Stephen King uses in a lot of his stories. And I wanted to throw it in here because we're going to get to a lot better films very soon in this retrospective where this trope comes up again. And I, and I wanted it to be shown in one that maybe where it's not as good, but the, the trope was still there so that we can follow the through line because that's certainly what is this is really all about i mean on its surface this is a story about a werewolf and all of that but it's really about this brother and this sister and the bond that they have and the fact that they really hate each other (laughs) but they learn to you know, care about each other and work together because in the end, they're the only two that really believe each other. I don't think Red believes them at all until he finally sees the thing clawing at him at the very end of that movie. And, and only then is he somewhat convinced of what he's seeing. And, and then he probably still thinks he's hammered. So played oh so well by Gary Busey. On, on one level, like I said, this movie's about a werewolf. On the other, it's really about this brother and sister, and it's all about their dysfunctional relationship. I mean, that's how you know you read about this movie. That's sort of the short of it, is that this dysfunctional family is sort of thrust into this story about a werewolf terrorizing their town. And that's another trope of Stephen King, the dysfunctional family. 
It kind of reminded me of uh, the Simpsons episodes where you get like Bart and Lisa trying to like track down Sideshow Bob. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, you got the brother and sister who are nothing alike, and yet their common goal brings them together, and it turns out they work better as a team than they could ever alone. <laughs> Isn't that kind of like what the whole theme of the movie is in a way? I mean, well, and that's exactly right. Is that these two by themselves are probably fodder for the werewolf. The the but together they're much stronger. The only thing that I think doesn't carry over from the novella that, and if they had, it it would only made it a little more interesting. Is that in the the book the Reverend never has any idea that he's the werewolf or how any of this happens to him or what's going on in the movie. He's very clearly aware that he's the werewolf and that he's doing what he's doing. He like has a purpose behind it. You know, he, he picks his victims for reasons and all that stuff in the book. He has no idea. He just wakes up with blood on his face and doesn't know why and scratches. And one day his eyes gone and he doesn't know what happened. You know, and like that, that to me is even a little more tragic. Like he's kind of sad in the book in this one. He's much more deliberate. And I see why they went with that in this, because you have to have a bad guy, right? Like, it wouldn't be any fun if if he didn't, if he wasn't menacing. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you need the villain. And I think by having it be a sympathetic villain, like it was in the, mo- in the book, because really, I mean, it's almost like it's two different entities sharing one body. When you have the werewolf and then you have the man, where neither one of them controls each other, but they each get their, you know, time to control that body. And by killing the werewolf, you kill the man. And it's kind of sad, kind of, you know, like a, you know, just kind of a sad turn of events that would have to happen to be able to kill the werewolf. You have to kill a guy who is basically innocent. So I can see why they changed that for a movie. I mean, books can get away with a lot more in that regard as to, like, making the reader think and, you know, I mean, that's kind of what a book's supposed to do. I mean, right. duh, right? And whereas a movie is just kind of more strictly entertainment, especially this type of movie. Right. I mean, they're not going to sit there and give you any deeper meaning, whereas, like, you know, you know, hey, we're going to resort this back to, like, the death penalty or something like that. I mean, that's not this type of movie, you know? So, no, no, this is total B film. And that's another thing, too. Like, this I would even call it a B film, man. Did you see that werewolf makeup? <laughs> Hey, this is Carlo Rambo. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, a level. The transformation five. effects, okay, okay. I mean, it was. It's obviously 19, It's nineteen eighty-five, man. I mean, this American it, Werewolf in London. Yeah, it's that same level of stuff. It's what they could do, and this is a seven million dollar movie. You know. Yeah, but you know, you watch like American Werewolf in London, and it's oh, like, yeah, it's not the transformation. It's it's fantastic, and they try. Right. They try to have the same type of effects in this, um, with like you know the ears kind of going in and the claws kind of going in, but it's like. Once you see the werewolf at all, it's glory. It's like, yeah, that's a man in a suit. Oh, it's it's totally a man in a suit. But the thing is, and, and the point <laughs> the is, the mask was bobbling sometimes. Well, the the point is, is they do a good job of not showing it as much as they could. Like they do hide it for a while, you know, considering how fast they get to the werewolf attacks. I mean, it's in the first scene. That you see the the claw chopping, you know, the manager for the Cleveland Indians from Major League's head off, <laughs> James Gammon. It's, it's they open it up just like Jaws. And yeah, it, it, a lot of this movie is kind of a rip off of Jaws. You know, you said it right there. They don't show the thing until the end, and it's like, could it be because they had the same problem as Jaws, it's where it's like the shark of like, look good? It's more of a rip off of like Jaws three. But yeah, I see what you're saying. It's it's in that same vein. If that it, it doesn't it doesn't look as good. And look, Dino De Laurentiis hated the way it looked. 
you know, and, and one director walked off the set because he hated the way it looked. I mean, that's how they got Dan Addis to do it. He's a noted TV director and has done a lot of good stuff. Matter of fact, did some season five episodes of Buffy that Brian and I'll be talking about in a few weeks. So, you know, we'll, we'll look at his work over there, but I, you know, I mean, they, they got, they, this is on the cheap. I mean, and this movie looks cheap and it comes off cheap, but if you'll allow yourself to go beyond that and just sort of get it, if you can get into the story at all, you can find some moments in this. I, I would argue that there's a there's probably a 45 minute thing in here that would really work. The fact that it stretches out for over an hour and a half is where it loses itself because it's it's too long. There's too many spaces of just people sitting around talking and of Corey Haim not being paraplegic. Uh, okay, can we just go ahead and talk about him? I hate to talk ill about the dead, but he may be the worst actor we've ever reviewed ever 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 in any of the films that includes all the leprechaun films We've what about ever... the main guy from blair witch 2 oh no that guy buries this dude totally yeah, because that guy's got a career so, all right that guy went on to do burn notice so this this is awful his dead eye line reading his he moves around too much for somebody who's supposed to be paralyzed i know that that you know he's a kid actor and they goodness knows somewhere in the middle of production you could tell they stopped doing shots of him moving in and out of that chair because it was so obvious that he couldn't sit still you know but it he is so bland in this there's only about two scenes in it nick where i could i felt like he wasn't just reading off a cue card off the side i mean his performance in this is enough to really take me out of it if i sit and focus on it a lot I mean, it, it's bad. I won't defend it at all. His his performance takes you out of it. Not, 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 nothing with Gary Busey. That's that's fine. We'll, we'll get to him in a minute. I'm just talking about <laughs> Haim for right now. He and the thing is, I'm and that's the problem though, because we're supposed to identify with Marty. We're supposed to feel sorry for him, right? But he's he's hard to like, and it's all in the fact that I don't think Corey Haim sells us at all that he's likable. Yeah, he's supposed to come off as kind of like a down-on-the-luck but positive character that you can root for, and he comes across as just annoying. He's a it's, brat. It's, yeah. Yeah, he's, a, he's an annoying brat, and it's like, you know, the first thing you get is like, you know, with him and his sister and she getting all full of mud and everything, and it's like, yeah, he's kind of a brat, man. It's like, I, I don't like him at all, and... Yeah, I know. I completely agree. And it's just like the movements too in the wheelchair are so obvious. It's like, dude, why didn't someone just, you know, put him in a pair of jeans and then sew that jean to the freaking wheelchair? It's like you can see his legs moving and it's it really, really, really takes you out of it. I mean, I don't know. It's it's terrible. <laughs> He's terrible. And I'm actually surprised he had a career after this. I mean, this has got to be one of his first movies, correct? Yeah, it is, and I don't know. Maybe there was something they saw something in this, or again, maybe nobody saw it. And you know, he was you know, doing could be with the amount of money it made. Exactly. Yeah, he was doing other things. I don't know, but I, it he's not he's not good in it, and it's bad. And the woman who plays his sister is not much better. Uh, she's kind of a shrew, but I think Bugger, she's supposed to. Be. I think she's supposed. Yeah. I think she's supposed to be, too. Now, I want to tell you something, though. This is where they made a mistake, because some of that dialogue is straight out of the book. And Stephen King writes in a dialect that is very specific to growing up in northern Maine. And if you didn't grow up there, you don't 
talk that way and you don't get it. And I didn't, I certainly didn't. And it's, uh, there's some things they needed to change. And for lack of a better way of saying it, Nick, they needed to Midwesternize some of this. They needed to middle America, some of this, and they didn't. And there's some of this that people, people say things and it's just not how people talk. And I can see why it did not make it across the, the broad audience because she, she's not somebody you want to latch onto either. And when they finally make her a little more sympathetic, I, well, I don't want to like Jane now, you know what? Screw you, Jane. You were a bitch earlier. Yeah. I mean, your first impression of a character is pretty much the one you're always going to take, you know, throughout the whole movie and to make both of them so bratty. And yet you're supposed to be kind of, you know, with them the whole time. It just, it doesn't work. And to get back to your dialogue thing, as far as, you know, Stephen King goes, I like his books, but let's be honest, the dialogue he uses in most of his book books is borderline terrible. I mean, his books work because of the plot, you know, the theme, the setting, you know, the mood that it puts you in, but it's like the character dialogue is pretty much universally bad. And I think that's a problem with a lot of the adaptations, especially this one, is when they bring that dialogue straight from the book onto the screen. Okay, now you're getting rid of like inner monologue. It's a lot harder to, you know, set up a story like it is in a novel when you got 800 pages. Uh, a movie's got a few minutes to be able to do that. So we can't do it as properly as a novel. So basically all you're left with is the characters, the actors, and then the dialogue itself, and if the dialogue is so bad, it's automatically going to sink that movie. And this is just another prime example of that. And yeah, it's <laughs> between him and the you know Corey Haim and the sister. And you know, can we get into Gary Busey now? It's time to talk about Gary Busey now. Here's the thing, though: we can't blame Stephen King for his dialogue. Most of that is on him. He he asked for permission to ad lib, and they let him do you know the line as it was, and then they let him ad lib. And most of what you see is the approved ad libs because they thought it was funnier and they thought it was better than what was written. I can only wonder what was actually written for him to say. And I'll tell you now, there's moments of his performance that I do find funny. I do think he's he's embarrassingly funny at times. It's only now knowing like the kind of problems that he has that you realize how probably hopped up and totally out of it he was during the shoot of this. Can I can I can I do my can I do my uh my callback that I do in every episode? Please do. You're the type of guy that would find Jar Jar Binks funny if you think anything he did in this movie is funny. <laughs> yes, there is my Star Wars callback for this episode. I find nothing about Jar Jar funny or redeemable at all. I think what Red is supposed to be is the stereotypical, and it's the way he's written in the damn book, too. He's the stereotypical fun uncle. He's the wild and crazy uncle. You know, who can't get his life together, but the kids look up to him because he is fun and he is funny. And Gary Busey is that guy. He's this lovable oaf who blows in on screen and gives his kid, gives his nephew, his paraplegic nephew <laughs> a, a motorized super wheelchair and fireworks and fireworks. He gives the paraplegic kid fireworks. Okay. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to sound mean here, but the kid is terrible in a wheelchair. How is he going to light off fireworks and not get his hand blown off? Okay. Can we, can we talk about the supercharged wheelchair for a minute? Can we just talk about the motorized wheelchair for a minute? Okay. Marty drives himself around town 
in what can only be described as if you took your lawnmower motor and stuck it on the back of a wheelchair, then Red basically takes a good go-kart motor or, or more and puts like a muffler on it. I, it. God, he turns it into like a motorcycle. And all I can think of being functional guy is, well, that's great. But what happens when he gets to school? Does he have to get out of that and get like one he can move around in the hall in? Does he park it? Does he have to have a license for God, that? I could, I, they need a director's <laughs> cut of it with him just like blasting down the hallway and not being able to stop and crashing into a bunch of lockers or something or a trash bin. That'd be great. God, you know, it, it, the whole thing kind of reminds me of um, – I'm going to bring up The Simpsons again. Remember when Homer – was building the go-kart for Bart for the soapbox derby racing thing. That's kind of like what it is. It's like Homer Simpson putting together a wheelchair. It's like this is what he would come up with. It's something so ridiculous. I'm beginning to think the Simpsons have ripped off Silver Bullet in more ways than one. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe Conan O'Brien, you know, was a big fan of it, and he brought it into the writing room when he wrote The Simpsons. Who knows? It could be. Who knows? But but the whole point is is that and all of this is to to. I mean, everything in this story is to serve a purpose, right? Is he has this supercharged thing so that he has something that could outrun a werewolf, right? That could outrun a a car. You know, I mean, it's it's preposterous, right? But in the same way that like a bad movie can just be just so goofy that you just go with it. I find myself willing to go with it because I'm laughing at it the whole time. And if I can laugh at things like that, then I can, I can enjoy myself in this because I'm, I find myself flashing back to when I was younger, when I didn't pay attention to any of that stuff and I wasn't picking this thing apart and I just sort of went with it. And I was like, Oh God, that would be really scary. I never thought about the fact that Marty might blow his hand off, you know, with fireworks. Because when I was a kid, man, I I played with fireworks, and you know, I I didn't blow myself. How was he gonna light them off in that wheelchair? Oh, was it possible? He's doing it. He he would he would light it and then wheel backward. You know, I know it's it's ridiculous, but you just go with it. The whole point is, and, and the whole thing's set up by what Red says. You can't let the bad guys win. This is the Reagan '80s, man. You know, that's what this is all about. Yeah. And as a moment, Brody, of a- what are you trying to say, man? We <laughs> want our we we want our guns. We want our rocket piled wheel rock rocket powered wheelchairs. We want our fireworks, man. We're communists. To, what I'm trying to say, man, is that the, the terrorists can't win, Brock. That's what I'm trying to say. And that, that's pretty much what Red's saying here too. And the whole point of all of that, though, because you knew the minute, and I've known it, in, and not only because I know the story, but I just knew, you know, when, when he ends in the fireworks and Marty's going to go out at night, you're like, you know that's going to become a weapon. He's either going to scare the thing away, or sure enough, he shoots the werewolf in the eye. And that becomes the Jaws 2, we've scarred the shark moment, right? That's how they find the Reverend. I I can go with that for as stupid as it is, because, again, it's just a dumb ride. It's just like going to the fair. That's nowhere nearly as cool as going to Six Flags. But if I just want to get on a dumb ride and eat cotton candy, eh, it'll do. Yeah, and making you want to vomit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully not vomit. So... Now, did you catch any of the townsfolk recognize some of these fun little cases? You know, you had Terry O'Quinn from Lost, among many other things, as the town sheriff. Uh, I thought that was fun. And 
Everett McGill as the Reverend Lowe slash the werewolf. Now, I know him from only one other thing, and it's Wes Craven's either complete derailment or masterpiece, The People Under the Stairs. Have you ever seen that? Masterpiece. Well, if you ask him, that's what he said. But no, it's, it is a it, it's a masterpiece. If you ask anybody with a brain, then it's what I call it as the derailment. But I know him from that. But he always reminds me of like David Byrne from The Talking Heads. Now, I mean, that's who he is to me as an actor, right? He's just this weird, quirky guy that always plays these weird roles. But you know what? Of all the the dreadful performances here, and most of them are, I'll venture to say his as the Reverend is probably the best one of all of them. I totally. I mean, he's total total. Uh, transparency when he starts preaching about comfort and the beast always goes away it's like oh yeah you're totally the freaking werewolf before they even reveal it but I love love how they tease that in because it is so Saturday night late night TV horror movie style but I dig it I, I, I think he actually did something with the really crappy stuff that they laid in front of him his role his performance is by far the best thing in the film in terms of performances yeah. What did you think about the Amazing Grace uh, little montage moment they had with like kind of like the back and forth between the church and you like that or? Oh, you mean the where they all become werewolves? No, where they're singing. Yeah, there's you know they're singing in church uh, mm-hmm. the song. I, I mean that that reminds me of you know the small towns like I near where I grew up. I mean I've I've seen that stuff. No, but I'm ta- I'm, I'm talking about like how they're kind of cutting between that and like the werewolf scene. Oh yeah 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 no 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 I yeah I mean I thought that was I thought it was well done. You know I'm just, I'm trying to reach here Jay for something positive for me to talk about. You gotta <laughs> help me. I'm, out. I'm following you. No, I like it, and I'll tell you the the only part of this film that ratchets up any level of real suspense. And they really do play with something is when Marty runs off and leaves his friend playing with his kite. And then the next thing we see is the sheriff walking away with that bloody kite saying the Hail Mary. I was like, now that was kind of, that was messed up. You know, like that. Poor, poor little Brady. Yeah. Brady got torn. He was torn apart. You know, I mean, that, you know, <laughs> that was, that, that, was that, that is the best line reading in the whole movie too. And he yells it at the preacher. Yeah. It was torn apart. And he does it again in the dream. Right. You know? Yes. Yeah. So, but I liked the little callback. I mean, again, it's, it's over the top. It's ridiculous, but it does lead to the second best speech in the film. And that's in the bar when everybody's having the fight and they're all about, you, you know, the sheriff's like, everybody better go home. We're not going to have this lynch mob mess. And then the dad of the dead kid starts going, you know, don't you dare lecture anybody. Let's go out and get some private justice. And instead of riling everybody up, he just says it in that quiet manner. Everybody grabs guns and they go. And, I mean, you know that that's going to end badly. But I, I thought that scene was effective. I thought it went well. And then, then, of course, it just all goes to pot when they get out of that badly lit fog. <laughs> I mean that was like something out of an '80s rock concert, but you know. oh yeah, that was terrible. That's <laughs> the fog machine's not working. Somebody grab a fan, you know? It's <laughs> yeah, this is terrible. Blow some cigar smoke into it. It's fine. I mean, you, you, you and work. I can recreate that with a pack of Marlboros and you know a good a good uh, you know fan. But you know that it, it was what it was. Especially the half face guy. I mean, that was that was awful looking. But you know, I had to do something and and uh. They had to do something to, to one up the body count, and I think that's the thing that surprised me that I didn't remember about this because again, it's been a while since I've seen it. The body count in this is really high. 
Like, there's a lot of killing in this one, you know, and this movie is supposed to be, I mean, it's a rated R movie and I'm going, but the, the appeal to this wouldn't be adults. I wouldn't know adults that would want to go see this. This would be a movie that like kids would want to see, right? Like this would be your slasher crowd, but there's no way they're going to get in and see this. I mean, this it's, this is a hard R in, in the mid eighties. I mean, this thing had, a, the only thing it didn't have was nudity in it. And I don't think there was a way they could have squeezed it in. You know, and if they could have, they probably would have. So, and it probably would have been Gary Busey, and nobody wanted to see that. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know. What about the 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 final bit though? When they finally, the fact that they try to give Low this reason, you know, or that he tries to give a reason to Marty when he when he uh, corners him on that bridge, it's like you know, Stella was uh, going to take her life, and that you know, in our religion, that would have. Uh, condemned her soul and i saved her from that and that is he just bs and marty you think or is do you think that's supposed to be his his actual motivation there i think he's bs and marty i think he's just trying to you know get him to put down his guard and card basically to try to you know get him to sympathize with him for a little bit so he can get the better of him later i yeah, I just I don't think he's buying it. I don't think he really could buy that. I mean, what was his excuse for killing the little kid? Yeah, see, that's a good point. Is that that's the none of the other kills ring true? Like the town drunk, eh, you know, nobody even talks about that guy anymore. The they don't even talk about the kid. And then what about the the lynch mob? Is that self defense? You know, it, it's it's yeah. almost like uh, you ever see the movie Hot Fuzz? Yeah, <laughs> just like that, where it's like they're going over the killing, and it's like there's a reason we kill them. It's like she was gonna take our prize flower collection to the other town, and we couldn't allow that. And it's just like Hot Fuzz, except not funny and not yeah. good. So, but what about the final showdown? The bit that they finally get red to make them a silver bullet out of those two necklaces, and they're gonna do it on Halloween and all of that, you know, contrivances and circumstances. To, to get in the house alone and all that stuff. Yeah, I love the logic of the uncle. It's like, let's get the other two adults out of here, and I'm going to keep the kids here, and we're going to get this werewolf. Just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's 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 perfect logic, isn't it? I mean, you're you're in harm's way. Bring a kid with you. I mean, it's perfect. Well, again, a kid, I'm, a kid in a wheelchair. <laughs> I'm never sold that he believes anything until it's finally on there at the end. You know, I, I'm I'm never sold on it until until he sees the thing coming at him. You know, see, I don't know. I can't, I can't read it either way. I'm just looking at Gary Busey and the weird faces he's making throughout the film, and it's like you almost can't. I don't even really pay attention to his line reading. I'm just like, how is he making his face do that? Co- cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> I guess so, man. Wow, dude, he must have been tweaked out of his mind. I can only imagine what was probably running through his system. All jokes aside, during during this production, it, it is uh, no doubt it was astronomical. Yeah, but, he, probably could, he probably could cut him open. He's as blood as fuel. <laughs> what about the final showdown? You know, they finally get going, and it's it's Marty who gets the gun and finally kills the werewolf. That wasn't a surprise at all, was it? I mean, you knew it had to be Marty that finally took the thing out, right? I was hoping for a Texas Chainsaw Massacre moment here with the uh, – let's keep on bringing up wheelchair people and all the wheelchair guy in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You want a great was, You wanted to hit him over the head with a mallet? 
No, the the, the brother in uh, oh, yeah. Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> I wanted the werewolf just to jump at him and just completely just tear him apart and being like, well, that was unexpected. <laughs> so you wanted the bratty sister to end it all and jump no, out? No, I, I wanted the werewolf to win. I, 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 at the end, I was rooting for the werewolf. I was just like, kill him. Kill them all. I just, I, 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 I wanted it to be where the werewolf would win, turn them all into werewolves, and the parents come home, and kill them, and it's going to be a town of werewolves. That's the ending I wanted. Wow. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever turned on a set of characters so much. but How awesome would it be to have a werewolf in a rocket-powered wheelchair? <laughs> <laughs> now that, that might be worth a sequel. So get I mean, off. You got, you, got, you, got, you got Teen Wolf. Where you got a werewolf basketball player. Imagine the sequel to this, where you could have, you know, him being a werewolf NASCAR driver. It would have been great. Would, I mean, days of silver bullet. There we go. Yes. So, <laughs> I can. I someone. Well, it, had this movie made any money, maybe that would have happened, but it didn't. I, so, I might have to write this one. <laughs> I imagine because they gave people money to make Leprechaun 4, you probably could get a budget for it, Nick. So, Driving a race car. I mean, that is <laughs> that is gold. <laughs> I think it, it might be, but you're going to have to explain how he can only race at Bristol twice a year. So, But, you know, that's your your script problem. You'll still have a, only two races. You'll still have more points than Danica Patrick at the end of the year. <laughs> oh, well, on that one, I think it's time to give our final points, if you will, and recommendations and popcorn ratings. So what are yours, if it, as if it's not totally obvious, for Stephen King's Silver Bullet? Uh, for me, it's kind of like, you know, with, with me at my house, when I'm making popcorn, the setting on my microwave is 3 minutes, 33 seconds. You just hit three, three times. This is like what happens when you hit three, four times. It's just a big freaking stinky mess that just is going to stick with you probably for the next week. After seeing this movie, it was just, I was cursing your name, Jay. I was just like, <laughs> you really, really made, I, it took me six times to watch this movie. Six times. I couldn't get past the, you know, the part with the kite with the kid. It was just like, I'd put it on at nine o'clock and normally I go to bed at 11 and literally I'd be asleep by nine 30, nine 45. I just couldn't get past the mid part of this film. It's not a good film. It's not even so bad. It's good. It's so bad. It's good. It's back to being bad. It actually transcends that. It goes completely around twice to being bad, good, back to bad. It's burnt popcorn, man. It's a small burnt popcorn. Terrible. I will agree with you that this is small popcorn territory all the way. And I think somewhere in this thing is about 40 minutes, maybe 35, of actual worthwhile watching of something. If you could cut it apart to just get that down, you have a really interesting short story. The problem is the performances are so bad and strung over the entire 90-plus minute frame of this it's it's not enough. And the the real issue is the best character, the werewolf, we get too little too late of him and not enough. And th that's my big issue. If they ever want to go back and do something, I think they, they should look at this one again. This one's ripe for remake because nobody knows this movie. You know, nobody would remember it. And even if they did, everybody would be like, oh, God, that's horrible. You know, you couldn't do it worse than this. 
they should go back and look at this again and do it from the point of view of the werewolf. Forget Marty. You know, we've done that and seen that a hundred times. I agree with you. This is small popcorn territory all the way, but there are archetypes in here and things that Stephen King does and that are part of his adaptations that needed, we needed to notice and needed to be talked about. And I, that's why we, we suffered through it, if you will, for this episode. It's just a preseason to the uh, yeah. Stephen King retrospective. It's just we got to get through it to get to what we want to. Well, I think it's exactly right because I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, folks, the next two in our list I think are going to be much, much more along the lines of what <clears throat> you think of when you think of Stephen King adaptation. We're going to do Stand By Me and then we're going to do It, which are two big ones for Stephen King adaptations and fans of Stephen King. So have no fear. Better things are right around the corner, or at least seemingly better things are right around the corner. It's been a long time since I've seen Stand By Me, at least at least a decade. So it'll be neat to go back and revisit that. I watched it last year, so and I revisit that one often. Reread the book in this year, so I'm I'm curious to go back to that one again. So I I think we've got. Some some interesting stuff coming down the pipeline in 2013 for sure. But yeah, this was the warm up, if you will, to what is to come uh, around the corner for us for sure. I have so, to ask you though, would you have recommended this movie? Because you're talking about if it was 40 minutes long, I'm basically a short movie. Yeah. Would you have recommended if a cat showed up in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> if the cat fought the werewolf? and threw it into a fan at the end and made out with Drew Barrymore? Absolutely. Medium pop. Oh, I, I brainstorm, brainstorm. <laughs> Drew Barrymore in a wheelchair fighting against a werewolf with a cat. Only if if Drew Barrymore becomes the werewolf. Then, then I'm into for it. So. And races in a NASCAR at the end. And becomes Danica Patrick. I, that's it. It's, <laughs> I, make, make the picture. But she's got to be on the internet because the kids are into the internet now. So that's what I hear. So, but, it's gold, Jerry. It's gold. I'm telling you. So, but before we go off to our uh, lucrative uh, production career, we'll probably do a few more podcasts, I'm, I'm sure. So, uh, folks, you can find more episodes of, of the Stevie King uh, selected works of Stephen King retrospective, as well as other episodes on our website continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies all kinds of stuff on there we, we reviewed you know other Stephen King movies we've done the Alien series all the Bourne movies uh, we've done you know some more trash cinema like Terror Vision all the Leprechaun films we've done even romantic comedies way back in the day you can check that stuff out um, you can also find links to our Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective podcast The Art of Slaying there uh, four full seasons of Buffy reviews and now into season five as well there for you to enjoy been a great 2012 we look forward to 2013 so until next time for Nick I'm Jay thanks for tuning in to Continuous Plays Filmstrip thanks for listening to Filmstrip Ghost is clear are you ready oh yeah I feel like a virgin on prom night <laughs> visit our website continuousplaypodcast.com for more reviews and episodes All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504, C2, Title 17.